For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Eva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Oklahoma County Commissioners vote to keep immigration and customs enforcement agents in the jail. The move also forces jail staff to honor 48-hour ICE detainer request. Just a few weeks ago, the Oklahoma County Jail Trust voted to remove ICE agents, although the vote was considered invalid. Neva, who do you think has the final say here? I, I don't think we know at this point, and I think it's a political battle that is uh, continuing to bubble up. We have the two Republican commissioners uh, uh, versus the one Democrat commissioner. Basically, what we have is a, a difference of opinion. Is, is the jail trust independent? Uh, or is there the possibility that the Board of County Commissioners can continue to impose their will and their view on uh, how they believe the trust should be obligated to, in their view, comply with federal, state, and local policy? So um, how this ultimately ends up, I mean, I think we can see that it's uh, certainly um, moving down the road first. A formal request of the decision has been made to, to the uh, district attorney's office. Um, uh, we obviously know, based on past history, that uh, judges have uh, uh, ruled that uh, detainers, the unconstitutional nature of detainers, the DA's office has said that holding inmates past their release would put the county at risk of lawsuits. So uh, more questions than answers. And unfortunately, uh, uh, this sets up for uh, what looks like uh, might be a very prolonged battle on Ryan. the question. Yeah, Ryan. Well, so, I mean, I, I would suggest everybody go take a look at Marty Piercy's reporting over at the Oklahoma City Free Pet Press. He has been in all of these meetings and you get some really detailed reports. And we're seeing, I think, you know, part, partly a, a national narrative around immigration uh, at the county level. Uh, you know, a, a lot of what we're hearing from Commissioner Calvi is, you know, really just this uh, regurgitation of a Republican or a conservative political narrative of being tough on immigration. Um, but it's also, you know, playing out in this very authoritarian format that we're now seeing within the Oklahoma County Commissioner meetings, you know, where folks are, you know, now being limited to to one minute to speak, where if one person goes over, they penalize the other person. We saw uh, reports of one of Commissioner Mon's staffers telling somebody to shut their expletive mouth uh, at the end of one of these and in, in, uh, in response to the protests that are happening there. It's a very charged situation. And I think that the commissioners uh, that are supporting this move are doing so uh, in a way that I think ignores the, the very serious question that Commissioner Bloomberg is raising uh, of whether the commission even has the authority to do this. Uh, and, you know, without waiting for an opinion from the district attorney's office as to whether they even have the authority, they're rushing this thing through. And then they're not thinking about the policy considerations. We've talked about this on the show before that the not in addition to the liability that Oklahoma County could face by holding folks beyond a date uh, in, in directive of some immigration enforcement, it also creates suspicion between immigrant communities and law enforcement, which is very counterproductive to public safety. And we've seen that time and again, both in Oklahoma and around the nation. So I think that this is far from settled. Uh, we'll see. I think that there's there's going to be some question and some challenge over the commission's actual authority here. Um, and I, I would hope that the jail trust would look at this as, as something as a usurpation of the authority that they were given under that trust and that they would push back and come up with a determination of their own. And that may be the jail trust comes to the conclusion, which I think isn't far-fetched, that ICE uh, officers should not be in the county jail. And then you've got the county commission saying that we are going to have ICE detention officers in that facility. 
Uh, and that could end up in court. Uh, and we could have a legal challenge to resolve those two conflicting uh, positions from county authorities. Well, and let's not forget the fact that it, it is uh, 25 days before the election, and one of the two commissioners uh, that voted uh, in favor of this action uh, is on the ballot uh, for uh, re-election. So all things could change if the composition of the commission changes. So there are a lot of things in play here, and certainly the political backdrop and the political dimension cannot be minimized in these circumstances. Right. If Spencer Hicks defeats Commissioner Brian Mon in this upcoming county commissioner race, the dynamics on that county commission change entirely. Uh, and I think that not only would there not uh, be enough votes, uh, we, you would immediately go from two votes in favor of ICE detention to two votes against it. And I mean, that's that, that would be a huge shift. And so a lot hinges on that election between Spencer Hicks and the incumbent Brian Mon. The state auditor and inspector puts out what's being called a deeply concerning investigation of epic virtual charter schools. The report finds the state's largest virtual school owes the state nearly $9 million and it sends one in four of the taxpayers' dollars to its co-founder's for-profit company. Ryan, your thoughts on this audit? It, it's the epic, epic audit. I mean, this is uh, this is not good news for Epic. I think that it confirms what a lot of uh, uh, critics of Epic, including legislators and former state legislators like uh, former Senator State Ron Sharp, uh, or I guess he's still current senator, yeah, right. but he's he's on his way out after being defeated in the in the primary. Um, what have been saying about Epic all along is that there has been a mismanagement of funds. And we shouldn't really be that surprised when you have legislation that oversees the way that the legislature has, has decided to oversee charter schools is that it's allowed for-profit corporations to set up in a way that allows them to make money, uh, you know, as their, as their chief objective. And that's, I think, pretty clear here that Epic's chief objective here is to make money at the expense of Oklahoma taxpayers. And they do it in a black hole of information. And so uh, the state auditor, Inspector Byrd, has said time and again that this audit took much longer than she ever anticipated that it would because there was serious interference with her ability to get documents. And even with the release of this audit, uh, we're still seeing that she, the, the state auditor and inspector is saying she still doesn't have all of the information that she needs to come to, to many conclusions in this investigation. This is far from over. Uh, I think that uh, Epic Charter schools are, are in deep political trouble, if not deep legal trouble right now. And I would be incredibly surprised if we don't walk into this next legislative session and see bipartisan support uh, for reforms that Auditor and Inspector Byrd have, has put forward, uh, saying that, you know, this is how we should govern this. There should be one governing agency. There shouldn't be multiple sponsors for charters. There should be some uniformity. And at, ultimately, there should be some sun, sunlight in there so that taxpayers, state officials, folks that are overseeing these organizations are able to know what's going on without having to issue 30 plus subpoenas to get people to talk to them. Neva. Well, I, you're right, Ryan, to the extent that let's let's first of all step back and and remember that this audit is the result of Governor Stitt calling for the forensic audit of Epic and all of its related entities back in July of 2019, uh, after there had been uh, a number of uh, public uh, revelations that the school's financial dealings were in fact being as investigated. Uh, in an ongoing investigation by state and federal law enforcement. So the auditor and inspector had a difficult challenge uh, kind of coming into this process. And as you say, there was a lack of cooperation 
unquestionably by the uh, uh, folks with Epic Charter School, with the auditor. Over 50 subpoenas uh, uh, were required to be issued uh, in an attempt to get information uh, and documentation that they needed for the audit. Uh, and, and frankly, even at the uh, news conference last week, uh, the auditor uh, went so far as to say that she had seen a lot of fraud in her 23 years. And in this particular situation, she was deeply concerned. So uh, while there's been this point by point response by the Epic folks, uh, and Ryan is right, this is a, a, a very um, deep and broad uh, effort to take a look at the entire financial picture of Epic. And it's going to take a while to unpack all of this, even with this audit and all of the findings that have been enumerated uh, page upon page that now legislators, uh, stakeholders, folks uh, in every walk of life interested in seeing that there's some bottom line resolution to this. I mean, we already have a situation, as Michael, you said, that uh, Epic owes the state of Oklahoma almost $9 million. So uh, these are serious, uh, they're, they're serious questions. Uh, they need to be resolved. Uh, it certainly, unfortunately, puts a, a very um, a difficult challenge on other charter schools to have this, this kind of uh, situation out there at the forefront with the state's largest charter school with Epic. So uh, I think that this is a story that will continue to unfold. I think it is uh, fascinating reading uh, uh, for anyone that wants to know more about uh, this whole situation by taking a look and reading the audit that uh, the uh, uh, the auditor has made available, I think, on her website and through her office. And Neva, I think you're right. You know, one of the things is that other charter schools now are, are going to have to deal with this stain. And it'll be interesting to see if uh, a coalition, if it hasn't already, and I just haven't seen it, but a coalition of charter schools uh, other than Epic come together uh, to go to the legislature proactively and say, you know, we welcome reforms. We, we welcome uh, more scrutiny. We welcome transparency uh, to distance themselves from Epic as, as a way to protect the charter school model in Oklahoma uh, from just being thrown under the bus with everything that Epic is doing here uh, that's come out in this audit and I think will come out in, in future reports and as well. I, and I think that is a very serious point because clearly in Oklahoma, there is a great appetite for charter schools. Uh, mm -hmm. that there is a growing uh, interest uh, among parents across Oklahoma uh, in the in the concept of, of a charter school as, a, as an option for their child's learning. And so I think that the, the more quickly we can see some resolution to this. I mean, and obviously that may be wishful thinking to the extent of just the level of the legal side of it and all that is involved. I don't think that uh, given what's happened to this point in this audit process, I don't think we're going to see uh, without a lot of outside intervention and pressure, we're not going to see a very quick uh, at least attempt to get some of the answers to questions that still have been unresolved. Governor Stitt is given the authority to oversee environmental issues on tribal lands. The EPA granted the authority after a July ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court that the Muscogee Creek Nation was never disestablished, a ruling which could impact other nations in the state. Neva, this announcement isn't going over well with tribal leaders. 
Well, it may not at the moment be going uh, over well with some and certainly not going over well with the uh, opponent to uh, Senator Inhofe, uh, Abby Broyles. But I think when you really look at it, what you, what what we see here, uh, just as uh, Governor, Sitt, Governor Stitt said on Monday, was that the EPA's approval keeps in place what is a decades long effort uh, between state and tribal leaders to keep uh, Oklahoma water, air, and land, all of that safe for everyone, uh, all Oklahomans uh, in our state. So it, it also, I think, uh, helps to minimize the possibility of a hodgepodge, as it's been described often, of all of these conflicting standards, which becomes not only very confusing for everyone involved, but it complicates the ability for businesses to maintain the day-to-day operations here in the state of Oklahoma. So it's good news for those folks uh, that have to deal with this, that have been impacted with this on a daily basis uh, uh, at, at the EPA. And I think, uh, as has been indicated, there is a concerted effort underway to make sure that all of the stakeholders, all of the folks can come to the table uh, and be able to develop what is what Senator Inhofe calls a consensus-based solution to address some of these problems that still are out there, questions that uh, the uh, uh, tribal nations and others uh, uh, believe uh, are unresolved at this point. Ryan. Well, I, it's hard to not see this move in the context of the governor's bungled negotiations on uh, tribal gaming compacts and his you know, just disastrous relationship that this gubernatorial administration has had with the state's sovereign tribes in the state of Oklahoma. And even though you know, it's, it's under the guise of providing some sort of continuity uh, with with regard to existing regulations and uh, the wake of the McGirt decision. Um, what I think that it really comes across as, and I think especially comes across to the sovereign nations and uh, within Oklahoma, is that it's it's an effort to exercise power uh, and leverage in future negotiation processes, whether that's tribal gaming compacts uh, or whether that's jurisdictional negotiations between the state, Congress, and tribal nations. Um, this This to me looks more like a a heavy-handed negotiating tactic that's that's really in bad faith than it is about providing continuity. I mean, we heard time and again throughout the McGirt litigation that if the Supreme Court recognized the persistent existence of reservation land uh, in Creek Nation within the state of Oklahoma, um, that it was going to lead to this this patchwork of of legal and criminal justice enforcement, that the, the sky was going to fall, the regulatory enforcement was going to become uh, unenforceable by the state or local or county governments. And you know, time and again, that's just not been the case. And even if the tribes were able to exercise that jurisdiction, which ostensibly they should be able to do, they still have to comport with uh, federal regulations. It's just who's administering those, who's overseeing those. And if you're looking at the sovereignty of these tribal nations, they should have the right to be able to protect their environment, uh, whether that's their air, their water, or their resources in a way that they see fit. Um, and that shouldn't be up to the state of Oklahoma. Uh, you know, things like you know where you're going to do groundwater disposal or anything like that. That should be up to those tribes because that's their sovereign nation. Um, Abby Broyles, I think, has rightfully pointed out that it was Senator Jim Inhofe in a uh, 2005 piece of legislation that snuck in this, this very, this very, you know, uh, this opportunity for states to grab this jurisdiction away from tribes. Um, and I think that it also comes down to a presidential campaign because we're looking at an EPA administration right now that's being run by a former Inhofe staffer 
uh, who, you know, I think worked with the governor to make this happen, Governor Stitt to make this happen. We, if there's a President Biden, I think that the EPA is going to change and this decision may change with it as well. Healthcare groups are forming a coalition to oppose state question 814. The ballot measure takes money from the Tobacco Settlement Endowment Trust to give to lawmakers for Medicaid expansion spending. No on 814 includes the American Heart Association, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, and Campaign for Healthier Oklahoma. Ryan, with votes, voters already sending in absentee ballots, is this coalition forming a little late? I think that there has been a lot of confusion around state question 814. I think a lot of voters got their absentee ballots in the mail and thought, what is this? What does this mean? Um, and and it's it's not... I don't think it's clear. I don't think it's clear and apparent because there really hasn't been a conversation for or against this until you know, very recently, and so it's not really clear to a lot of Oklahoma voters what's the underlying policy behind this. And the, the underlying policy is to take money away from TSET, which has come under criticism in years as you know, whether or not they're they're spending the money the way that they should, or whether their mission is what it uh, used to, what what it's uh, traditionally been, and. I think that there's some question about whether the law, the legislature should consider different ways that that money going into the tobacco trust fund is being spent. But the real issue here is that lawmakers are looking for a way to pay for Medicaid expansion that doesn't require uh, the imposition of any sort of new tax or revenue raising or moving money from one thing to another. And the idea that this is the only way to do that, I think, is a misnomer because even a state question 814 passes. That's not going to give the legislature the money that they're going to, they're still going to have to draw money from elsewhere to invest in Medicaid, which ultimately will be a huge return to the people of Oklahoma when we make that investment. It's a great investment. Um, but it also means that uh, there are other ways to do this. The legislature passed a, a hospital provider tax at the end of this last legislative session that was meant to provide a stream of revenue for Medicaid expansion. The governor vetoed that. There are ways to do this without changing uh, the tobacco trust fund that um, in, in, a, in, a, in an enormous way, moving, you know, just swapping the ratio from 25% going to the legislature uh, and other state resources and 75% going to tobacco cessation programs uh, to 25 and 75 the other way around. That's a huge change. And I think that Oklahomans probably need to think about this more before they just go out and you know, vote yes for this thing and make this enormous change to the way that tobacco education works in the state, tobacco cessation education works in the state of Oklahoma. Neva. I think it is going to be interesting when we look at the short fuse and the fact that voters really have not paid much attention or heard virtually uh, nothing about state question 814. And as Ryan says, we can try to distill it down to what, what are the folks for it? Uh, all about and what are the folks against it all about, but it really may come down to who makes the most persuasive case the quickest and the strongest uh, in the closing stretch. And I think when you talk about uh, the proponents, uh, uh, the Oklahoma Senate uh, saw creating state question 814 as a, a proposal that would change the split in, in the how the uh, endowment monies were uh, uh, utilized. And it did set the stage clearly as uh, the measures uh, sponsor, Senator Kim David, said, uh, with the budget situation as it uh, currently is, it would give the opportunity to deal with the uh, funds that will be needed uh, for the Medicaid expansion that has been passed by the voters of Oklahoma. So I think uh, 
the uh, the opponents coming out with the arguments that it's a diversion of funding from uh, what was Oklahoma's primary uh, source of tobacco control, preventative uh, funding, uh, public health crisis funding, all that is um, uh, uh, encapsulated into those health-related programs and use of the TSET funds, that, that's going to be a much more complicated, I think, uh, argument to be advanced to the voters in such a short period of time. So I think, uh, I think as these two groups, or however it turns out, uh, the, for, the, the folks for the proposition state question, the folks against the state question, they've got a big job ahead of them in a, in a very short period of time. And I think uh, when in doubt, we know that based on past history, uh, voters oftentimes will just leave it blank or say no if they don't believe they have sufficient information to make an intelligent uh, decision at the ballot box. The state Supreme Court shoots down another provision of the 2014 Workers' Compensation Overhaul. This section limits wrongful death recovery only to a spouse, child, or legal guardian. Neva, as I mentioned, this is one of many issues the justice have taken with this bill. What What's the issue here? Well, I think the issue was a case uh, that uh, uh, we had a um, a woman that had filed a workers' compensation death claim on her son, who was a 23-year-old uh, unmarried childless adult uh, who, who was uh, 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 killed in an uh, accident out on oil field uh, equipment. And taking it through the district court, basically what the Supreme Court, as I understand it, uh, now is saying that constitutionally, she cannot be cut off from a remedy altogether and this will basically reverse the lower court's ruling and allow this case to move forward. So it's another uh, in many uh, changes to the workers' compensation system that has come about where we've seen, I I believe uh, there was one account where there was 40 or more provisions that over time have uh, been ruled unconstitutional or invalid. So uh, this is another, just another case of where we see the Supreme Court declaring unconstitutional a piece of this uh, workers' comp overhaul that we saw back uh, in 2014. Ryan. Eva, you're right. Bob Burke, one of the leading experts in Oklahoma's workers' compensation system and its laws, uh, noted back in 2017 just uh, three years after this law had passed, that there had been more than 40 uh, provisions struck down as unconstitutional by by courts and unenforceable. Um, I think that this is, again, what what the court said in this case is that the legislature has has it within its rights to limit the amount of recovery that somebody can have in a worker's compensation claim, Uh, but they can't eliminate the right of recovery altogether. And the mother in this case, she initially filed the workers' compensation claim. It was denied so that you're not a beneficiary of a workers' compensation claim because you're not a, a spouse or a child. And so then she went and filed a wrongful death cl- case claim in district court. And the district court kicked it out and they said, well, workplace injuries and, and, and deaths uh, should be resolved under the workers' compensation system. So you had a mom here that had zero remedy uh, to get any sort of compensation Um, and relief from her son's untimely death at the workplace. Workers' compensation and the whole system is a a bargain. It's It's a bargain for employers and it's a bargain for their workers. And what it says is if there's an injury or there's a death as a result of a workplace uh, uh, that happens at the workplace, 
that rather than go to district court and file a wrongful death case that could be years and years and years and, and expose employers to, to untold amounts of liability and damages that could be assessed against them by juries, um, that we're going to provide some certainty for them, but that we're also going to provide certainty for the workers. But this 2014 law uh, and the, the reforms that happened back in the, the, the early 2000s were really not uh, in, in the same spirit of a bargain. You know, they have, uh, legislators have largely been taking rights away from the workers and their, and their families and trying to give it to employers and their insurance companies. And uh, the Supreme Court yet again has said in that grand bargain that we have in workers' compensation, you can't go that far. You know, it's interesting also that the court did offer some specific suggestions uh, to the legislature for fixing this portion of the law. I mean, they they um, said that basically the legislature could come in and uh, uh, deal with the 85A and the statute. They could amend it to include these statutory errors, just as was before the 2014 amendments. So it'll be interesting as uh, uh, the various committees and legislators, as they return in February, whether this is on the radar and something that they will choose to immediately address and, and perhaps uh, uh, decide that this is a fix that they believe is appropriate. That doesn't happen very often. The court giving a blueprint to the legislature yeah. doesn't happen. I mean, so they've done their homework for them. You just copy and paste it. Uh, and I, I, yeah, if, if we don't see a bill doing just that, this legislative session, I, I think that we, we should all be surprised because. Well, I mean, and the court was divided on the decision as well. And I think yeah. that's important to mm -hmm. note that there was division on the court and, uh, and also one that did not vote. Ryan Nevis comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.